Last week, I left you with what is man? And the answer is that he is in the image of God and made in the image of God, he is given through Jesus Christ a distinct privilege of being able to be seated with him. And therefore, there are things on the earth that need to be contended for, that need to be prayed for, that need to be pursued. And in light of that, I want to move to the next step, step in the, 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 the thinking and the, I, I want to say prophecy, the prophetic word that God has put in my heart for this time and this season, for us as Cornerstone and certainly for us as Americans, that we need to take the next step, which is not only making a stand and not only uh, being seated with Christ, but understanding the power and the implications of declarations. Declarations, whether written or spoken, have implications. I've often tell, told people that when we accept Christ as our Savior, we assume that we have broken fellowship with Satan and his minions and evil and the darkness. But sometimes it needs to be said, we need to actually say, I renounce, that's a declaration, I renounce my affiliation with Satan, with his kingdom, with his darkness, with his evil. I renounce that. And people will look at me with strange looks and say, what difference does that make? And I have to do the absurd to sometimes get people to understand the power of a declaration. So I'm going to just do it for you real quickly. I said, uh, I say to people, I tell people, listen, let's suppose that you would do the absolute unthinkable. You would say to yourself, you know, I've walked with Jesus. I've accepted him as my savior, but I'm done with him. I want to give up on him. I want to leave him. I want to break fellowship with him. If I decided that I wanted to break fellowship with Jesus Christ, it's absurd because no one in the right mind would. But if I did, could I wish him away? Could I want him away? Could I ignore him away? No, I would have to say, Jesus, I renounce you. I renounce you and your kingdom, your righteousness, faith, the blood, everything that's been given to me. I would have to renounce that in order to actually truly be separated and free from him. Now, I know that's an absurd thought, but I want you to take that now and turn it around and say, how important is it to renounce Satan, his kingdom, his darkness, and the sin that led us there? How important is it to renounce? Declarations have consequences. And the framers of our Constitution understood that. Lord willing, next week I want to talk to you about the revolutionary pamphlet that fueled so much of the fervor for a desire to be independent from Brit the British uh, uh, rule and empire. Uh, it was called Common Sense. 
I found a way to preach from common sense, the scriptures. And so I'm going to share that with you next week. So the writer of common sense, his name was Thomas Paine. Thomas Paine, in his revolutionary pamphlet called The Common Sense, wrote, The cause of America is in great measure the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances have and will arise which are not local but universal. I'm going to read it again because he used common sense and we're not used to hearing that sometimes. So plain English, though it be old, the cause of America is in great measure the cause of all mankind. We weren't just fighting for freedom and liberty for Americans, even when, when the colonists were fighting for the freedoms and liberty of America. They didn't realize that they were actually fighting for the cause of all mankind. So the cause of America is great, in great measure, the cause of all mankind. Many circumstances have and will arise, which are not local, but are universal. And liberty and the fruit of liberty, freedom, is somehow, in some measure, instinctively put in the heart of every human being. Every human being desires freedom and liberty. Most people don't choose their bondage. How many remember last year, 2020, that very special year? In 2020, we experienced so many things and so many losses, some of them including our liberties. But if you could just take that thought for a moment and transport it backwards to 1775, 1775 was the colonies 2020, if you follow that logic. What we experienced in 2020, they experienced in 1775. The British, who had protected them during the French and Indian War, had finally said, we're done with you, and we're no longer protecting you. From here on out, you're going to protect yourself. And um, there were many French soldiers sitting on our Canadian border who was waiting for that word. The colonists suddenly realized that they were on their own. And then to add insult to injury, the British crown decided, we're going to make you pay for the previous protection that we gave you. We're not protecting you anymore, but we're going to cause you through taxation especially on your tea, we're going to cause you to reimburse us for protecting you in the past. Many of you realize that that led to skirmishes and battles and tea parties and all of the things that we read about in history, but to live through it would have been completely different than just a little thumbnail sketch. So I I just want to give you just a little taste of that. For example, in Concord, when when the British soldiers opened fire on the militia, 
there were a hundred colonist militiamen who were killed. Now, before they were killed, 200 British soldiers were somehow killed by that little ragtag army. And that little army sent a message that went resounding around the world because a little country that was barely alive and on life support with no standing military and no navy had now returned fire. Someone stood up to England. Most of the people who experienced the wrath of England were captured and enslaved and imprisoned and deported. Many of them, in fact, sometimes as much as half of them died in the journey. The colonists experienced the wrath of Britain. Then the British established outposts in New York City, outposts just outside of Philadelphia, other places strategically, especially along the coastlines. The British just left pockets of soldiers. All of this stuff is going on, but the worst atrocities of all are not even mentioned in the Declaration of Independence, but history would tell us that their soldiers raped, pillaged, stole, burned, and destroyed American citizens, just like you, just like me. Soldier running out of rations comes to your farmhouse, and he ransacks the place, takes your cows, your chickens, takes your daughters. And the British were being absolutely tyrannical in their grip on the colonies. So in July 2nd, 1776, a year later, John Adams Thomas Jefferson and a handful of other founding fathers began to speak about a written declaration of separation from England. By July the 2nd, they had the, the structure of a rough draft. By July 4th, the assembled delegates and Continental Congress had cut and pasted and edited and accepted a formal declaration. 200 copies of it was printed. A scarce 40 of or so of them survived to this day. And there was printed one man's name at the bottom. It was not signed yet. It was just printed, John Hancock. I want to say for a moment that if you will... Any revolution, be it physical or spiritual, can begin when one man puts his name on a ledger. When one woman decides they've had enough and they begin a process. One name turns into, well, by August the 9th, there had been um, 56 names. 
So on, I'm sorry, August 2nd. And on August 2nd, the delegates came together and finally ratified and absolutely published and absolutely signed, 56 of them signed their names to this document. They read it aloud and they made a declaration. Then the delegates went home and General George Washington went to war. But before he went to war, he gathered his beleaguered troops, which he was put in charge of. He was commissioned to take over the 16,000 or so across the colonies, these men who gathered together and pledged themselves to become a continental army with no training, with no professional um, experience, and uh, most of them without proper equipment and clothing. He gathered these men together, and General George Washington did what he is so famous for. You know, he was a great general, not because that he was so strategic, but he was a great general because he knew when to speak to the troops. So he gathered his men together. No one had thought of this. And he read the Declaration of Independence to those soldiers. And then he said to the men, these This document that I've just read to you, this statement, this declaration, this is the cause for which your country asks you to serve. This is that cause. And the men unanimously lined up behind General George Washington and pledged themselves for the cause of the American dream. Now, George Washington would have no way of knowing that because of the events on July 2nd and then subsequently on July 4th, there was an armada of 400 British ships that were sailing towards the America coast with about 30,000 soldiers on board, supplies, munitions. And many of those soldiers, they were all either professionally trained soldiers of the strongest military power in the world at that day, or they were militias that were hired. They're mercenaries from other countries. 30,000 came in response to the Declaration of Independence. When the document was read in the Americas, suddenly British, under the command of King George, began sailing for the coast of this country. And as they began coming, they became uh, known as the largest naval armada that the world had ever known. It was the largest invading force ever assembled to inhabit another land, to conquer another land. They all came with one desire, and that was to defeat General George Washington and his 16,000 troops. I want you to hear just a snippet of what those soldiers heard read from General George Washington. When he read to them, he read this. This that I'm about to read has survived the editing and has become a part of the engrossed or the embossed 
the legitimate uh, printed uh, copy of the Constitution of the United States. And it starts out this way. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which they have connected them and with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the causes which impel them to be separated. In other words, England, America is going to divorce you. And here's the reasons. And in the Constitution, we read, among other things, just a little snippet to give you a reminder. The framers of the Declaration said of King George in particular and of the British people and Parliament in general, these conditions exist. Number one, they refuse to obey our laws. Some of us don't realize that the British had allowed governors to be appointed and even a legislator, and they sort of created some of their own laws. And they were living under occupation, but yet with a certain amount of self-governance. So they created laws, and laws such as this one, you cannot come and kick my door down and steal my cow, my dog, or my daughter. You can't do that. And so the British refused to obey these laws. Then they refused to let the legislators create new laws. Then they dissolved the legislators and appointed other people in their places. And they appointed new judges. And these judges were uh, dependent on King George and only answerable to him. And then he keeps us, and this is a direct quote, he keeps among us in times of peace standing armies without our consent. In a minute, I'm going to transition from that to the God of this world who has found ways to entrench himself in our culture, in our hearts, in our homes. And I want you to think that as the colonies were dealing with this British oppression and tyranny, that also you might extrapolate from that that we have an enemy of our soul who's found places of lodgment and homes and comforts where he is basically keeping standing armies among us. And we think we're at peace, but he thinks he's at war. In a moment, I'm going to share with you one verse, and with that one verse, you and I will defeat him. I can tell you're thrilled with that, you know. One verse, you will never look at Satan the same way again. 
He keeps among us in times of peace standing armies without our consent. He has plundered our seas, ravaged our coast, burned our towns, and destroyed the lives of our people. Now this one is in the rough draft, and it didn't make it into the final copy. The reason is because the southern states had many slaves. He has waged a cruel war against human nature itself. And they begin to go on and define the slave trade. And the Framing Fathers, when they did the rough draft, said, we are done with slavery. We are done with it. Now, because of New York and the southern states, that didn't make the cut. They kept it a little more basic, a little more simple, a little more civil. So, for these reasons, and many more, if I could just turn to the back of the Constitution and read to you, we, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general, Congress assembled, appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, colonies solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all alliance with an allegiance to the British crown that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dismissed, and that as free and independent states, they have, be, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce. Well, that's the other thing. The colonies didn't have their own money system. And to do all the other acts and things which independent states may have the right to do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, that would be God, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Brothers and sisters, declarations written or spoken have great, great consequences. The declaration was made and nine years of war ended when General George Washington finally pushed the British out of Yorktown. Took a couple years more to establish the terms of peace but America was born. So these great freedoms that we have came with a great price and a great cost. People, God-fearing people, looked at the situation and said, this has become intolerable. It has become unbearable. General George Washington was the only founding father who did not have a formal education. He was a farmer a plantation owner, a soldier. He was trained in the French and Indian War by the British themselves. But he had a conviction that God was with the colonists and their cause. History would record later 
that general, the general actually lost more battles than he won, but the ones that he did win were strategic and decisive. Without a standing army and no navy, Washington defeated the most powerful nation on both land and sea. And today we celebrate that liberty and the freedoms both that are the fruit of the American Revolution. So once again, I say declarations written or spoken have great consequences. I wonder if you could, for a moment, bow your head and thank the Lord personally for the country that has been given to us. Amen. There have been a lot of talk lately about history and revision, and we went through a terrible political um, time of uh, chaos and destruction. And, you know, uh, it, 2020 was a, a very difficult year. And yet, here we are today. And yet we have these freedoms. And yet we have an opportunity. And yet we have an obligation. But I want to turn from just a little bit of review of history to just a little bit of review of the church and her role. When it comes to making declarations, what is our role? I'd like to share with you a verse in a moment when I share this verse with you, I'm hoping and praying that you might adopt it as your own revolutionary cause, something worth fighting, something worth dying for. So in a time of reflection this last week, I thought on my own frailty, my ineptness, my humanity, my, you know, lack of courage and power and sometimes character and honor. And I see myself as someone who is something of a private first class in God's army when I should be a general by now. And as I was reflecting on those things and thinking about this particular day, something has been of a groundswell that has been going on. It's not political. It is revolutionary. It's more prophetic. Something has been stirring in my spirit for some time, and I'm just about ready to speak. In fact, some of it I'll share with you today. But there has been something that has been just short of a spiritual revolution going on in my own heart. Maybe it's my 65th birthday coming up so quickly, which is not as old as you think, but it's way older than I want to be. Maybe it has something to do with that, or maybe it was just the Holy Spirit. As I did what I've encouraged you to do, as I'm praying the scriptures, as I'm praying through the Psalms, as I'm waiting on the Lord and pressing into him, 
I've been very guarded about the pulpit during this last season only because I want to make sure that everything that we release is prophetically aligned with God and Scripture. I want to be on the edge prophetically, but I'm not willing to risk inflaming people, inciting needless, hurtful, angst, and hatred. But this revolution that is stirring in my heart has me asking, how does a private become a general? And I know that you could say it was a little late for that because you really should have been to Annapolis or West Point or some kind of training that would be offered for soldiers. We have the Army War College here, for goodness sake. We've got all these opportunities, but I'm thinking more spiritually. It's in my time of reflection and my weariness with my rank and my desire to advance into a place where as a, at least a lieutenant or as a, uh, perhaps as a sergeant or God forbid, you know, if even as a general, we could advance as we get older and more experienced, both with life and with God and with our country and the things that in the perspective of time, you could actually look into young people's lives and start to show them, look, let me tell you, you need to be on guard about this. You need to be aware of this. You need to consider this. And there's always the thing that I will be replaced by a younger man very soon. It just is the course of nature and life. So as I reflect on these things, I felt the Lord searching my heart, and as I felt him searching my heart, I felt this nagging thing that has come to me at strategic times in my life when the Lord actually asks me, what do you want? What is it that you want? And like, I've never found a genie. I've never been granted three wishes. But at certain times, God has presented me with this question. And here it is again. Before I go any further with that, let me just tell you that don't put me on any kind of a pedestal. There's no need for that. I'm a man just like you are. I'm groping in faith, advancing as I can, when I can, where I can. Please do not compare yourself to me. If anything, you should be further ahead of me, and I pray that for you. But at this season, at this particular time in my life, the Lord is asking me, what do you want? And when you ask a pastor, what does he want? What, does he, what do all pastors want? I mean, you know... Well, for one thing, they want churches that are full. And for another thing, they want people whose lives have been changed and transformed. Another thing, you know, they want peace and quiet, conflict-free living. I'm not looking or auditioning for a new wife, not looking for a new house, not looking to retire. But what is it that I want? And in a moment of delusion or inspiration, I said to the Lord, having considered this at great length, the thing I want 
more than anything else is for everybody to experience the liberty and the freedom that I have in Christ. That's what I want. That's what I'll live for. That's what I'll die for. That's what I will work for. That's what I will pastor for. That's what I will encourage. I want everyone to experience the love and the life and the joy and the liberty and the freedom and the beauty and the blessings that I have been privileged to receive. And I don't deserve any of them. But God in his grace and Judy in her amazing patience has allowed it to happen. I want for you exactly what I have experienced, freedom and liberty. For your children to be raised in a country that is full of people whose lives have been set free. People who are no longer fighting for wickedness and unrighteousness. A whole different uh, set of agenda and a whole different worldview. But the one that God gave me is what I want for my kids and for my grandkids and my great-grandkids and on. I don't have any great-grandkids yet. But soon enough. So, I felt like the Lord said, I accept that. Now the question is, where do we begin? We begin today. I believe that July 4th, 2021 is a pivotal day in America's history. I truly believe that things are going to change today. In your heart, in your life, in your family, in our cities, in our communities, but in our country as well. I believe that God has not finished with America. I believe that the cause that he delivered unto the founding fathers is still a cause that God agrees with and is aligned with. So where do we begin? As I channeled my inner general in the making mindset, I started thinking strategically, I started thinking logistically, I started thinking practically, and I'm still asking my question, myself the question, you know, where do we begin? And the only thing I can say is right now, I believe that we begin with a declaration. I believe that the revolution that you and I have inherited and experienced the benefits of all started with some people sitting around saying, this is not how we envisioned our lives to be lived. This is not what we signed up for. Things need to change. I wonder if there's anyone besides me who feels like that our country could use a little bit of change, a little bit of reformation, a little bit of transformation, uh, another spiritual revolution. I wonder if there's anyone today who's sick and tired of their lives, the way they've been living it, 
and they'd like to be bumped up in rank and begin to move forward with the Lord and see him do great things in our, in our nation, our country. By the way, I have to go out on the ledge here and say, tell you that I personally do not feel that the return of Jesus Christ is going to happen this year or next year. It's going to happen soon, but it, uh, it's been 2,000 years of soon. And I think that whether he comes next day or next year or next month, it makes no difference. The decisions we make today will affect how we live, no matter whether the Lord returns or not. So we're going to live as though the Lord could return at any minute, but we're also going to live our lives like we're building for a future, if you don't mind. I have one verse of Scripture to share with you. This one Scripture could change your life and my life. It could set you free. One verse could change everything and start a new revelation. Before I share this verse with you, and I'm not holding it out here because I'm trying to make an event, I'm actually just, the impact of it requires just a little bit of explanation. Within the first 50 years of the church being born in Jerusalem, God began to do something extraordinary. He began saving Gentiles. Now you have to understand that the Jewish people had lived their lives to be independent people. They were dominated by Rome. They didn't like to admit it, but their, their governor was a pilot. Uh, I'm sorry, it was a uh, puppet. Their governor, Herod, was not the true king. He was not a real king. He was an established, appointed king. And the Romans absolutely, totally detested the Middle East. They hated everything Jewish. They hated everything uh, that was related to Jerusalem. No one wanted to be there. The ones who were on the naughty list ended up being established there or assigned to Israel, to Jerusalem. It is in the beginning of the church as the people began to understand that Jesus Christ had saved them, that they were, they were all Jews. So it was an upgrade of the covenant that God had given to Moses. And they found out within 50 years that it absolutely included the rest of the nations of the world, which means the Gentiles. So I want you to understand that for all of the Jewish experience, they were taught from little Jews all the way to the time they died about how to avoid the sinful people that were around them how to maintain kosher, how to maintain holiness, how to remove from their house any influence of evil and wickedness because being occupied by the Romans, some of the most wicked people on the planet who ever lived, actually having been dominated by the Romans, they were in such danger 
They had their own revolution in the Maccabees. You can read about it in the history. You find out that the Jews and the, and the Romans went back and forth time and time again, wars after war after war. It was horrible. And it finally ended with the Romans crushing and defeating the very last Jews that held out against them in Masada. So now in Jesus' day, he grew up in a Jewish home with a Gentile culture all around him. When Jesus passed the baton to the disciples, the disciples went to their own. They went to the Jews, and they shared in the synagogues. They taught Jesus. They began to show the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah and that the resurrection from the dead confirmed that God had accepted his sacrifice. And so in the midst of all of that, the church began to grow. And then one day, God begins to speak to Peter. As he begins to speak to Peter, he begins to show him in a dream, in a vision, how that God had cleansed not just Jews, but potentially Gentiles as well. And at Cornelius' house, Peter understood that God was welcoming the nations. And so therefore, Peter had to welcome them. And all Peter knew to do is to say, um, guys, you know how unlawful it is for me to be here? I mean, this is just like, like if you came to my house, that would be one thing because I keep a kosher house, but I'm at your house. I don't know what you do here. I don't know what you eat here. I don't know I don't understand, but this I do understand. God has showed me in a vision that what he has cleansed, I need to consider clean. So he began to preach Jesus, and before he could finish his message, the Spirit of God fell on Cornelius and his household and all those people that had gathered with him. And the craziest, mind-blowing thing that Peter had ever seen in his life, and he had seen a few with Jesus, was that God was filling Gentiles with the Holy Spirit. Well, the Holy Spirit only goes into a holy temple. So Peter concluded that if the Holy Spirit was comfortable with them, then the church should be as well. And they offered them water baptism and they baptized them as full believers. Not one of those Gentiles had to become circumcised to become a Christian. Not one of those Gentiles had to start keeping Sabbath to become a Christian. Not one of them had to start keeping the covenant of Moses to, to follow Jesus. All they had to do was receive Jesus and follow him. This was mind-blowing. Peter had a very difficult time processing that. Peter gets called on the carpet by the church in Jerusalem. Say, what in the world are you doing preaching to Gentiles? He said, look, I got to tell you guys, this is what happened. He explained the whole story. And so there was a meeting of the founding fathers of the church. And they concluded that God was saving Gentiles and that the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised. They didn't need to keep kosher. They didn't need to keep covenant 
of Moses. They needed to follow Jesus. That happy news was a declaration and is turned into a letter. And that letter was taken around the world and shared with people. And guess what? Gentiles started accepting Christ. Paul the Apostle is given a mission. He is the most rigid Pharisee the world has ever known. And he gets saved. And his commission is for Gentiles. He begins leading people to Christ. And as he starts leading people to Christ, he goes to the synagogue first. He preaches. When they threw him out, then he would preach to the Gentiles and they would accept Christ. So he established 14 churches, traveled three continents, some estimate over 10,000 miles that the Apostle Paul traveled in his lifetime. And while he was all the way up in Corinth, God began to move on his heart and he wrote a letter to the Romans. Now the Romans said, listen, that Gentile message, that gospel message they're preaching that's going around the world, it won't work here. Rome is like New York City. You bring that to, to, to Times Square. Just begin to preach the gospel in time chair, uh, 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 Times Square. That would be kind of like going to Rome and preaching the gospel. And Paul said to them, he said, look, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and then also to the Greeks. So he writes the gospel as he understood it in 16 chapters. And this last chapter is the verse that I want you to look at with me. In, in Romans chapter 16 is the verse I want to go to here. The gospel is having its effect. It's working Rome is firmly entrenched and empowered. Paul would soon be arrested. He would be carried by the Romans all the way to Rome to be executed. But as he concludes his message, he's saying this is the declaration that will change the world. This is the one that will set... This is the greatest freedom. This is the freedom that Judy talked about. There has never been a greater liberty or greater freedom than the freedom of the human soul. There's never been a greater bondage than when the human soul is in bondage. So you can be in chains, and Paul would prove that, and be liberated on the inside. Or you could be in freedom and bound so that you couldn't understand or accept anything. And the verse that I want to share with you is Romans 16 and verse number 20. As Paul's concluding, he writes to them and he says these words, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Declarations written and spoken have consequences why would Paul say what he said? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Uh, real quick history lesson here. Within 70 years, the Roman Empire would be destroyed. Not by a conquering army, 
but in part by the gospel and the wickedness and the corruption that was in the city. Sorry. I know that there is a temptation to say that the church has had 2,000 years and we don't see Satan crushed under our feet yet. But we're supposed to remember that even as Paul spoke these words, that within 70 years, within a short 50 years, the, the nation that he was speaking into would be destroyed from within and by the gospel uh, reaching hearts and lives. So where, where is this gospel been in these last years since then? Why is the why is Satan still walking around like a roaring lion? Why is he still devouring nations? Why is he still uh, uh, causing the uh, abortion of a million uh, children a year in this country alone? Why is he getting away with that? If the God of peace is going to soon crush Satan under their feet, then wh how's he getting away with it? First of all, I just want to remind you that the word peace is the Greek version of the word shalom. So that when, when, when the Christian, as Jesus would walk into and be in a room, he would say, peace unto you. What he is doing is he's releasing the shalom of God. When he released the shalom of God, it's the spirit that destroys chaos. When you, when you give, uh, go into a home, you're supposed to greet it and give it your shalom. When you walk into that home and you release that shalom of God, that, that suddenly there is the uh, permission for the Holy Spirit to begin working in hearts and lives and changing people. So, to, to, to say the God of peace. He's the one who makes peace, but here's how he does it. He does it by releasing his spirit and his spirit begins to destroy the chaos in your heart. He begins to destroy the chaos in, in my addiction. He begins to destroy the chaos in, in, in my gambling addiction. He begins to destroy the chaos in my pornography addiction. He begins to destroy the chaos in my drug addiction, my alcohol addiction, all the areas and different areas in which people find themselves in bondage today in the hurts and wounds of the heart. When you, when you release shalom, you begin to release the Holy Spirit to begin to destroy chaos. And when God destroys chaos, he puts things in order. I just reference the man who was possessed with uh, a legion of demons. At the end of that ordeal, when he was delivered, the man is now clothed, he doesn't need chains, and he's in his right mind, and he wants to follow Jesus. And believe it or not, that scared people more than the demons. There's a prophetic word that is stirring in my spirit that I, I'm so like on the verge of sharing with you today and you just pray because we'll just see how this goes but I just want you to know at this juncture and this point we are going to continue to have chaos until the church releases the shalom of God and how that is done is like this when Jesus hung on the cross 
And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. God finally had a man on the earth whose heart was linked with his. Jesus was unbending. He was unyielding. He was not affected by culture. He didn't give in. He didn't cave. He didn't compromise. He didn't turn uh, aside to the left or the right. He was focused like a laser on loving God and serving God. And he rejected all the pagan nonsense in the world around him. But even as he's dying, he's forgiving the people who don't understand the consequences of their action. I'm here to tell you that that the Lord is looking for a church of people who will pray that prayer. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. God has had a very difficult time finding Christians who can stand firm for liberty and justice and the principles in which we hold and yet at the same time not judge and not criticize and not critique but to love them into the kingdom. By releasing the shalom of God, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The battle wages and rages on. So here's the thing that I remember. When I read this verse, when I declare this verse, I'm, I'm first of all, I'm hearing the Spirit of God saying, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And I know that we want to say, okay, now this is something that only Jesus can do. And when he returns, everything will be sorted out and he'll judge the nations as he should. And all this will be wonderful. But I think that that's short-sighted. I think that God is saying to the Roman believers, he's saying to those people who received his letter, I'm telling you that even now, as you sit surrounded by by, uh, Roman soldiers, and, and they've got the weapons, they've got the technology, they've got the numbers, they've got a stranglehold on you, they've got a grip on you, it's like the British Armada coming after George Washington, you seem so outnumbered. You seem like there is no way in hell you're going to get out of this. But God is saying to you, I'm telling you that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And that means it is Jesus' victory. But it's also mine. It's also yours. As I walk, as I worship as I pray, as I intercede, as I share the testimony, the Spirit of God is changing hearts, setting people free, allowing people the privilege of having vital contact with Almighty God, returning to Him. Would you please stand with me? Because I believe now that we can look back on history, history will say that within a few short 50 to 70 years, the Roman armies were never a problem again. Just like
when the last British soldier pulled out of New York and went home. The English were no longer a factor in the colonist life again. And now they had to figure out how to live in this freedom, how to not return to a yoke of bondage and slavery. It took them 10 years to put together a constitution and form a new government. It took them even longer to get delegates and elect a president. But I'm here to tell you today that this verse in Romans 16, 20, that is my promise that the God of peace who destroyed the armies of, of Rome, who destroyed the armies of the British, will destroy the armies of the adversaries, the God of this world. Every step I take in Christ, in faith, in love, every step I take is crushing Satan's head under my feet. Every step you take, you pull your children aside and you tell them um, in our house, here's how we do things. Like, I know that in your friend's house, there's, you know, they 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 practice some things and they do some things and we don't agree with them. Um, but here in our house, because we love Jesus, we don't do those things. We're not we're not doing those. We instill life, liberty, passion of these kids suddenly they start growing up like they don't even know there's an enemy they don't even know it because you're protecting them as for me and my house not only are we going to serve the Lord but as for me and my house we're going to crush Satan's head under our feet I know that sounds like a bold statement it sounds like too much it sounds like Gosh, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about defeating Satan. I'm not talking about defeating him in the entire world. I'm talking about defeating him in my life, about a, a defeating him in my family's life. I'm talking about defeating him in this church, in our city. I'm talking about defeating the adversary wherever I am and I go. So because declarations have significance, whether written or spoken, I'm going to ask you to consider repeating this declaration. In Romans 16, 20, it's very simply this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. What a happy thought.
Let's just declare that out loud right now together, if you could. Romans 16, 20 says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Okay, that's, that's warm up. Let's get it. We're warming up. <clears throat> it's a holiday weekend, I understand. Let's try it again. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. starting to feel it now I have to say it till I feel it I have to declare it till I believe it one more time would you just with me humor me this morning let's just Romans 16 20 could you just speak it into the heavens I don't care if ships are coming I don't care if soldiers are coming. I don't really care what the world decides to do. All I need to know is that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under my feet. I'm not I'm not afraid. Come on, let's do it one more time. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. God has whispered to my spirit a couple of things. I'll just share one of them. There's a spirit of fear in our country. And the God of peace is going to soon crush that under your feet. By the spirit of God, I tell you, that there is a fear of God that is going to return to the church. The fear of God is not being afraid of Him. The fear of God is not just having respect for Him. It's like when Ananias and Sapphira die in a church service because they were trying to uh, uh, pull something over. When the awe of God, when the miracle of God, when the signs and the wonders happen and suddenly, like when Pharaoh's army recognized that the wall of water was coming down, they suddenly knew the fear of God. God is returning the fear. The fear of God is returning to the church. And it's going to be a good thing because that fear will cast out all the other fears. That the fear of God will destroy all your other fears. We are a people of many phobias. We are a people of logical and illogical fears. But the fear of God is returning to the church. And God is going to drive out those other phobias by His fear. And I, and I sense, you know... A while ago, it was before the election, the Lord just put this in my heart. He whispered to me, and I, when he does this kind of thing to me, I'm like, what am I supposed to do with that? 
Well, it's, it's information. The Lord said to me in, I think it was November, it might have been October, but last year, He said to me, He is done with abortion. God is done with abortion. I don't know what that means. I think that it means that He's done with it. I think that it means that He's going to fix it. I think it means that He's going to get involved in this, but God is done with abortion. Hallelujah. God is going to call the church to pray. They're going to pray the Father forgive them for they know not what they do kind of prayers. But there are prayers that the church is going to be able to exercise. The Holy Spirit provoked my heart and it's just like totally like not the way I think at all. But the Holy Spirit began to share with me like there are some that that there are some um, principalities and powers and rulers of darkness that are associated with some people and those people we should have dealt with them in the spirit in prayer we should have dealt with them by now and we haven't and God's not real thrilled with that but he's going to call the church to pray and as we begin to pray you're going to realize that we have an opportunity that whatever he binds in heaven we can bind on the earth whatever he loose in heaven we can loose on the earth there is there's a, a responsibility in prayer that's coming and so you're going to not just sit around watching the news saying what in the world is going on but God's going to use you to crush Satan under your feet. Father, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for this opportunity. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would begin a process of changing the atmosphere and changing the environment. Changing the atmosphere, changing the environment. church is not going to get more political it's going to get more spiritual it's going to get more powerful it's going to become what she ought to be so father we we pledge ourselves to this great cause and i i'm just going to go out on a limb and say god with all my heart i believe i believe that the god of peace will soon crush satan under our feet i believe that's why I declare. That's why I make this declaration. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under my feet. Under my feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under my peace. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you so much.